our text this morning is 1 John chapter 2, the very last two verses of chapter 2. 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 28, but uh, if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of the Word of God this morning. Hear the Word of God. John writes, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, um, I know I've done this a couple times or more already as we've gone through this book, but I I think it always bears uh, repeating uh, from time to time that the overall purpose of the book of 1 John, I hope that you're finding it, if you've been here for most of of our studies in the book, I hope that you're finding it to be uh, encouraging to you in the faith. But the the purpose of the letter uh, that John has written here uh, is that we might, we who are believers, might have uh, the blessing, the great blessing of the assurance of our salvation. In other words, John John wants everyone who believes in Christ to know that they are saved, to not be in doubt as to their state of their soul uh, before God. And so from time to time as we go through these studies, and we have a few more chapters to go, I think we do well to kind of take to stop a little bit and remind ourselves of uh, John's statement to that effect right towards the end of the letter in chapter 5. In 1 John 5.13, John gives us what you might say is a, a, the purpose statement, so-called, of the letter. In other words, why did he write this letter? What's the main reason he wrote it? Here are the word that John writes in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write things, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote these things, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to, as believers, we who have believed on the name of Christ, uh, the Son of God, he wants us to know that by believing on Christ, we really do have eternal life in him. And so one of the things that that should teach us is God, God clearly reveals to us here in his word that he doesn't want his people who have believed on Christ, his son, for salvation. He doesn't want us to be unsure of whether or not we have been reconciled to him through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he does not want you and I to go through life wandering around and wondering whether or not all things are well with our souls. He doesn't want us wandering through life crossing our fingers and saying, well, I think I'm okay with God. I think when I die on my the home... Uh, My home is in heaven. He doesn't want us wondering whether or not God is our God and whether Christ is our Savior and whether heaven is truly our home. He wants you and I who believe in Christ to have certainty, to be dogmatic about these things. He wants us to have, in other words, assurance of our salvation. And that's a theme that really runs throughout the entire letter. You know, John kind of caps it off in chapter 5, verse 13, But really all he's doing there, you could say, is summing up everything he had said in the chapters before that. Everything John says in this letter is in some way or another aimed at encouraging us as believers to have assurance of our salvation. And this is even true if you've been here through most of these studies. You know, we've spent a little bit of time because John uh, in, in these opening chapters has had cause to refute false teaching. He's had cause to call out the false teaching of the people that we call Gnostics 
Uh, but any false teaching, at times when you read stuff like that, you think, oh, this is the part where I don't understand. Why does he have to argue about theology and all these things and call out those who are teaching false doctrine? Even the, the calling out and the refuting of false doctrine in this letter is really for the purpose of strengthening the assurance of, of believers. And why, why do I say that? False teaching, and especially false teaching about the person and work of Christ for our salvation, what does that do? It robs us of assurance. Because it, where do you get assurance from? You get assurance from the truth of Christ in the gospel. And false teaching about Christ attacks the very gospel itself. And so that's one of the reasons that John so clearly and forcefully refuted the false teaching that the church was dealing with in his day. False teaching in many ways opposes and contradicts the gospel itself. And so in, in refuting that false teaching, John is trying to strengthen our assurance and to protect it from the errors and, and uh, heresies of false teaching. And so when John exposes the errors and, and false teachings of those who were disturbing the peace and purity of the church, he also there reminds us of the truth of Christ that Jesus really is the Christ, chapter 2, verse 22, that those like these false teachers who denied uh, the Son by denying his true divinity or his true humanity in the incarnation, that those who deny Christ don't, don't have the Father, uh, and that all those who abide in Christ and also abide in the truth of Christ, as we have heard it from the beginning, verse 25, he says, what do we have? We who believe in Christ, we who abide in the truth of Christ, as we've been taught from the beginning, we have the promise of God to us, he says. And what's that promise? Same word he used in chapter 5, or phrase, eternal life. God has promised to us, he says, chapter 225, promised to us who believe in Christ eternal life. And God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind, the Bible says. So if God says something, you can stand on it. When God gives you a promise, you can take that promise to the bank, even when it comes to eternal life. And so that brings us to our text this morning, as short as it is, verses 28 and 29. We're going to spend most of our time really on verse 28 in particular, and verse 29, Lord willing, we'll deal with that uh, directly when we get to chapter 3 in some ways. Uh, but, you know, the, the way we live in obedience to God's commands uh, does, does relate to our abiding in Christ, but we'll handle that mostly next time, Lord willing. So uh, notice in verse 28, John repeats the phrase that he also used at the end of the previous verse, verse 27, when he says, abide in him. He repeats it twice uh, for good measure. Look again at verse 28. He says, and now little children, what? Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence or boldness and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, the, the Greek word for abide or remain occurs in 1 John. 1 John is only five chapters long. It's a very short letter as far as New Testament letters go. He writes a couple that are shorter. 2nd and 3rd John, of course, are much shorter. But in five short chapters, John uses the word for abide or remain 24 times. 24 times in five chapters. It's, it's not always translated the same way, abide, 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 abide. But, it, but most of the times it is. It must be an awfully important topic and theme in this letter and an important aspect of our assurance if John is using this, this word so many times over and over again. 
Uh, so 24 times in five chapters, he tells us in some ways to abide. Uh, it's clearly a key theme in the letter, and that shouldn't surprise us again, as abiding in Christ is very closely related to the idea of assurance, isn't it? John tells us that he wants us to know, that's another key word in 1 John, he wants us to know uh, that we have eternal life, and that word to know occurs 25 times at least in 1 John. So these two words are, are very much uh, connected. Uh, he wants us to know that we're saved. He wants us to know that we must abide in Christ and in the truth of Christ rather than being led astray by false teaching about the Lord. Now notice one thing. Notice how tenderly John appeals to the believers in the churches to whom he is writing here. What does he call them? What, what does John, how does John refer to them? He says, and now little children. Now we, we might take that as an insult if we took it the wrong way. Like, I'm no kid, I'm in my 50s, you know. No, he says, little children. John was, an, was older in the faith in, in many ways. He was, uh, as far as we know, the last living apostle. We don't know how old he was when he wrote this letter, but he was probably rather, rather old and towards the end of his, of his life and serving Christ in this life. But he calls them little children. You know, it, it's, like he's, it's like he's their grandfather in the faith and he wants them to know that everything he's writing here, even the difficult parts, he's writing out of a great love for the church, a great love for the well-being of those who have believed in Christ. He means to do them good, and he means to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to grow in the grace of assurance. Now, we must, we must abide in Christ, and in many ways, he tells us, that means abiding or remaining in the truth of Christ. To abide in Christ, you can't just go on to believe whatever you feel like believing about Christ if it's not revealed to us in Scripture. Every new wind of doctrine that comes along about Jesus Christ isn't scriptural and is not to be uh, believed. We are to hold fast to the truth as we have been taught in, in the scriptures. Uh, we're not to follow after every fad that comes along, every new quote-unquote secret new doctrine that uh, false teachers may try to use to sell you in order to make merchandise of your souls. That's what they do. They, they want to make a following for themselves. They teach novel things, things that aren't revealed in scriptures and I'll say this you know we we in our day and it's been this way for a while um, we take pride in being open-minded most people do you know if someone were to say to you oh you're closed-minded we most of us would take that as an insult as a, as a negative but I'll say this the Christian the believer in Christ when it comes to the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ you have to be immovable you have to be immovable when it comes to the truth of the gospel. We need to stand fast in the truth as we have been taught from the very beginning, as we are taught in the scriptures, in the word of God. Certainly every one of us who believes ought to take to heart the, the admonition, the exhortation of the apostle Peter. Uh, we use this verse as a, as a benediction very often. In 2 Peter 3.18, he tells us, exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer in Christ, one of the things that you should make it your aim to do as long as, long as you're in this life is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You, as a believer, you never, never come to an end of that growth. There, there's no, you know, it's not like graduating high school or college or whatever degree you may or may not have. It's like, well, I've, I've read this much. I've, I've learned this much. I've studied this much. You know, I've read the Bible a couple times all the way through. I think I'm done now. 
I've learned all I need to learn. No, the Bible over and over again tells you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, and you know what it's about? It's about the word of God. Everywhere in scripture you are encouraged to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in many ways. Uh, In fact, if you want your life changed, what does Paul say in Romans 12? Don't be conformed to this world. You know, there's an old paraphrase, the J.B. Phillips translation that puts it this way. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that pressure is always there, isn't it? The world doesn't take a break uh, from trying to pressure you to squeeze in and, and conform to their way of doing things. But Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how does that happen? Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Our minds always need to be renewed according to the word of God. But that being said, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Uh, We are to grow in, further in to the knowledge of Christ, not grow past or away from it. Growth in grace, growth in the knowledge of the word of God doesn't mean getting past the doctrines of Christ into some other thing that that some people might say is the thing you really need to know and learn Uh, in order to grow. We grow further into the doctrines that we have already been taught clearly in the word of God, not growing past them or growing away from them. Well, the second thing to notice in our text is the reason, first, that John tells us to abide in Christ. Why does John encourage you and I to remain and abide in Christ? He tells us in the text. He wants us to have confidence at the coming of Christ. He wants you and I to have confidence or assurance Even when Christ returns in glory, if he were to do that in our lifetimes. Look again at verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him, that is abide in Christ. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Here John brings up what we call eschatology once again. Uh, you know, remember he already spoke of the Antichrist earlier in chapter 2, verses 18 and 22. He talked about many Antichrists have come, those who deny Christ in many ways. And now he speaks of the return of Christ. Uh, and I'll take, this is a minor point, but I think it, it's worth noting. You'll notice that when John, here in our, our short text, talks about the return of Christ, he does not speak of any intervening event such as the rapture in such a way that, to, that it was separate from Christ's return. John doesn't talk about two different returns of Christ. He doesn't talk about a secret rapture and then Christ's return. He talks about that we wouldn't shrink in shame at Christ's appearing. When he returns to judge the living and the dead, he speaks of Christ's return and the judgment to come. He doesn't speak of some other almost return of Christ in the intervening time between that Event And now, when Paul says that we who believe, we who are alive and remain, will be caught up together, that's the passage usually taught about, uh, usually used to teach the, the doctrine of the rapture, when he says that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord and the departed saints to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, he's, he's clearly speaking of what's going to happen at the Lord's return to judge the living and the dead. The next thing on the eschatological calendar, so to speak, that we are waiting for is the return of Christ the King. That's what's next. That is the next thing on the calendar. And so here in our text, John doesn't bring up 
eschatology in a vacuum. You know, I don't know if you've ever had these conversations. If, you, if you're a kind of person that wants to study and learn, which is a good thing, you ever have debates about eschatology or, or, or heated uh, discussions with other believers about different aspects or different ideas about the end times? Oh, I'm an amillennialist. I'm a postmillennialist. I'm a premillennialist. I'm a dispensationalist. I'm a, you know pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Uh, pan-millennialist, as everybody likes to say, because you believe it's all going to pan out, right? In the end, wh- whatever way it happens, uh, sometimes I like to just use that. But, you know, we, we, we disagree on things and we kind of argue and we sort of take pride in, well, my view's right and their view's wrong. And uh, we like to kind of poke holes in things uh, in each other's uh, views. But notice the way that John brings it up here. Uh, really the way the scripture always brings up eschatology, so-called. When the Bible brings up the last things, it never, ever brings it up as a matter of trivia. It doesn't bring it up in a vacuum. It doesn't bring it up in order to satisfy our curiosity uh, or as a matter of just trivial interest. John, as the rest of the scripture does, brings up things about the last times in such a way as to show its vital importance and relevance to each one of us. And in this particular case, he wants us to have assurance. And what is assurance? What is it good for if you don't have assurance when Christ returns? Isn't that really the main point? When you talk about assurance, it's how we talk. We want to know, I'm sure of where I'm going when I die. Or when Christ returns, when he comes or calls. Now there may have been, we don't know, but it seems likely that there may have been a tendency among the false teachers that John was dealing with here in the first century uh, we believe it was Gnosticism, the, the false teaching that, that was being uh, creeping into the church. There was probably a tendency among some of them not just to deny uh, Christ's true bodily incarnation, which they certainly did. They didn't believe that the Son of God could, could become a man because they believe anything physical or anything tangible was evil. And so they denied Christ's incarnation, which means they denied Christ's death on the cross which means they denied the, re- the bodily resurrection of Christ. Well, what does that do to the gospel? It eviscerates it. It makes it a make-believe. It makes it nonsense. But what else would they have denied? The bodily return of Christ at the end of the age. And not only that, they certainly denied the judgment to come. They denied all of that, and yet they tried to call themselves Christians. They tried to appeal to people within the Christian church to follow their teaching. And so this probably at least part of the reason that John brings it up here is to remind them the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man, the Son of God became flesh, is going to return bodily in glory one day at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead, including them. And John says they're not going to have a good time at that. They're going to be shrinking back from him in shame at that, is what he's implying, but you don't have to. In fact, you have no reason to shrink back from Christ in his return if you're a believer in Christ and are saved in him. That's, that's really the, the thing that John's emphasizing here is the certainty of the judgment to come. You, know, that's, you don't have to be a Gnostic to deny that. The average person, the average unbeliever, and even some Christians, so-called, professing believers, make it a point to deny the judgment to come. Peter writes about it. Other, other parts of the Bible write about it. Uh, you might have heard at the very end, the very last verse of Ecclesiastes 12, the very last verse of the book that Rob read this morning. It doesn't say the return of Christ, but what does it say? 
It says, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. And then it says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. You fear God because God sees all things. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I, I, in my mind, I often gloss over the first part of that. Whether good or evil. In other words, if you're doing good as a believer in Christ, knowing that no one, even when no one else sees you, what you can say to yourself is, Jesus sees all this. And even if the world rejects it, rejects me and all these things, God, will, the, the just judge, will reward these things by his grace on that last day, as well as punish those who do evil, even when things they think are secret, but God sees all, all things. The return of Christ and the judgment to come is an essential truth of the Christian faith, isn't it? That's why we confess it when we confess the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed together, those ancient ecumenical creeds of the Christian faith. What do we confess in, in the Nicene Creed that we confessed last week? We believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, among other things, that he will what? He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. It's such an integral part of the Christian faith, we confess it even in the ancient creeds. When the Lord returns in glory, there will be only one of two responses. Only one of two possible responses. And John lists them here for us, doesn't he? Either we will be among those who abide in Christ by faith and so have confidence at his appearing and have boldness at his return, even rejoicing at his return, or we will be among those who shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Those are the only two options we have. To be in Christ and rejoice at his return, or to be in our sins and outside of Christ and shrink back from him in shame at his coming. And so I asked this morning, which, which one of those groups are you in? Are you in Jesus Christ by faith? Because if you're in Jesus Christ by faith, by the grace of God, you can rejoice and should rejoice at the return of Christ or when he comes or calls. We should even hasten, as the Bible says in some way, hasten and look forward to the day of his coming. Because it's not a day of wrath or terror for you if you are in Christ. It's a day of rejoicing. Are you among those who have confidence at Christ's return? Do you rejoice at the very thought of, of Christ coming back in glory to take his people home and to judge the wicked? Or are you among those who will be ashamed at his coming, as the King James Version puts it? Now, there's a vision in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, and Revelation uh, is, is a book filled with visions that teach us many things. Uh, and this uh, this is what uh, John writes, the vision he was given in Revelation 6, verses 14 through 17, of the return of Christ, of what, what it will be like in many ways. He says, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Like the whole heavens and the earth are, are kind of turned, turned upside down. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. There's a phrase, isn't it? And from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath 
has come, and who can stand? Who's saying that? The kings and the great ones of this world, the ones who boast of their power, their possessions, their you know, all the things that they have, all the things that they do, who thumb their nose at Christ all their lives, who, who kind of fulfill that role of Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth, they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying we're going to throw off his fetters and bonds. We're not going to have Christ to rule over us. And what does Psalm 2 say about the Lord? He who sits in the heavens, who's enthroned in the heavens, what does he do with that? He laughs. He holds them in derision. He smashes them as, pot, as pottery with an, iron, with an iron scepter. That's what the Bible speaks of, about the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone will answer to Christ on that last day. But notice again, notice who's going to be among that group of people who are calling on the mountains to fall on them. I mean, imagine asking for that, to hide them from the wrath of Christ. All kinds of people, all kinds of people. It includes the kings of the earth. It includes the rich and the powerful. Verse 15. They don't get a pass. And their great power and possessions, which were not used for God's glory, will do nothing but add to their condemnation on that great day. You know, very often in this life, people of, of means, people of power and authority, there's this, te there's this tendency to kind of think, well, I must be doing something right. If there is a God, he must really like me because look what he's given me. But they don't use it for God's glory. They don't bow the knee to Christ and confess him as Lord. And on that last day, they will be begging for mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. This group will also include everybody slave and free. Everybody from the highest king to the lowest slave. The unrepentant come in all shapes and sizes. They come from all walks of life. And the judgment of Christ will be the great equalizer, won't it? Everybody stands equal at the cross, at the foot of the cross. All who are outside of Christ will stand condemned before Christ. They will beg the mountains to hide them and to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. And who can stand? And we read this morning in the call to worship in Psalm 130, speaking of who can stand. And what does it say there? If you, O Lord, Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Only the most arrogant, sin-hardened person could possibly think, well, I could. I'm not as bad as those people over there. I can stand on my own. No one. The psalmist of all people is saying, not me, not you. Who, who could? It's a rhetorical question. Who could possibly stand if you're to mark our iniquities? Nobody. There's no hope if that's the case. Left to ourselves outside of Jesus Christ, the Lord does mark our iniquities. And so no one on their own can stand before Christ at the judgment, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. The psalmist doesn't stop there, does he? The very next verse, verse 4 of Psalm 130, he says, But, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you should mark our iniquities, I got nothing. I got no place to stand, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And how is it that God can forgive sinners. How is it there is, that there is forgiveness with God? Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. 
overflowing redemption. Infinite, you could say, redemption from our sins because where did the redemption come from? The blood of Jesus Christ and his cross. And he says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And that brings us to the the third and final point, which is not just confidence in Christ's return, but is that our confidence must be in Christ alone. Our confidence must be in Christ alone. How is it that anybody in their right mind can hope to stand before the Lord of glory at his return? Especially when you consider that his glory will be such that even the kings of the earth are going to be so utterly terrified of his wrath that they'll be begging mountains to fall on them and hide them from his face. There's only one way. There's only one way that we can stand on that last day and have confidence, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's only by the grace of God alone that we can be saved uh, from the wrath to come. And so for believers, and for believers, we who deserve nothing but the just condemnation and wrath of God for our sin and our iniquity. That's what we deserve. If you want fair, if you want, you know, fair like we always say, we want fairness. Fair is condemnation. That's what we deserve on our own. Uh, But that's not what we get if we are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we stand in Christ alone in such a way as to have confidence or even boldness at Christ's return, even rejoicing at Christ's return and hastening that great day. That's the difference the cross of Christ and only the cross of Christ makes. The believer in Christ, if you think about that scene I just read about in Revelation 6, the believer in Christ can look at that scene of the sky being rolled up and, and, and turn, turn asunder and actually sing the words of that in a, in a hymn. And I'm going to apologize ahead of time that I, I made our order of worship and printed the bulletins before I was done with the sermon. Otherwise, we'd be singing this hymn this morning. But the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, by Horatio Spafford, it says this. Think about the wording he uses here. He gets it from Revelation 6. He gets it from that very chapter. He says, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight." The clouds be what? Rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even then, what? It's good. It's well with my soul. How can any mere mortal and a sinful one at that sing that? I mean, it's one thing to say it. He wants us to sing it. How do you sing something like that? It's because of the truth of the gospel. And and he thankfully gives that to us in the previous verse. Before you can sing about the clouds being rolled back, he says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. What happened to it? It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Probably good we're not going to sing it. I don't know if I'd make it through it. Yeah, sorry. Um, do you see why John says you have to abide in Christ? Not some little thing. It's not some nitpicky theological thing. It's about being in Christ and having boldness at his return. And so let no one lead you astray by false teaching. That's not according to what you've heard from the beginning in the gospel. Let no one lead you astray from the simplicity of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's not faith plus something else. 
It's not Christ plus something else by which we are saved. It's only by abiding in Christ by faith that you and I will have that confidence or even boldness whether Christ calls or comes, whether he comes again at the last day or calls you home before that. You could say that while John doesn't use this word in our text, what he's really talking about here or maybe hinting at in some ways is the great gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone. I think that's what he has in mind here. The truth of that, if not the word itself, is what he has in mind. Now, what, what is justification? I'm glad you asked. Uh, there is a question in our catechism that I always like to use whenever I get the chance. Question 33 of the Shorter Catechism defines uh, justification for us well. It says this. What is justification? Question 33. The answer is justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So it's all an act of God's grace. It's not something that we earn in any way. It's not by our works. It's the grace of God by which he truly forgives all of our sins. He wipes the record of our sins away because it was paid for by Christ on the cross. God himself paid the debt of our sins by the blood of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the flip side of that, as if that weren't enough, he doesn't just take away your sin, as good as that is. He actually accepts you and I, if you're a believer, accepts you as righteous in his sight. Does, does God need glasses? Has God got some kind of vision problem where he looks at us and goes, ah, you're good enough. Yeah, I accept you as righteous. I know you're not. Is, does God believe lies? Is God saying to himself, ah, they're not really righteous, but ah, ah, whatever. Boys will be boys. They'll be right. No, he accepts us as righteous. Why and how? Only on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us, accounted to us by faith alone. It's by faith alone that you and I are united to Christ and abide in him. It's only by the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ put to our account by faith alone, by which that's how God accepts us as righteous in his sight. How is it that God can accept us as righteous? Because he accepts you, if you're a believer, he accepts you in Christ. Another way of saying that is if you are in Christ by faith, God accepts you as completely and as unchangeably and perfectly as he accepts his own son. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, God who sees all things, the God who cannot look at sin because he's so holy, he accepts you as much as he accepts his son. You are as accepted by the God of all creation and redemption. If you're a believer, you are as accepted by God as Jesus is. That's justification. That's the gospel. That's what you have believed. That is why you can have boldness and confidence in Christ at his return or when he calls you home because you only have confidence in Christ alone. In closing, I just ask, where, where is your confidence this morning as a believer? I trust that you are all believers where is your confidence, though? Is it in your own goodness compared to other people? Is it in your good works? Is it in your own religiosity? There's lots of people that don't even get up and go to church, and I go, right? Were the Pharisees religious? 
They were. Were they right with God? No. Or is your only confidence to stand before God to be found in Jesus Christ alone and in his blood and righteousness? That is the only way to have confidence at Christ's returning glory or to have confidence when he calls you home is to have confidence or faith in Jesus Christ alone. The scripture says the one who comes to Christ by faith will never be put to shame. Romans 10, verses 9 to 13, Paul says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's, sometimes Greek is written in kind of an awkward way. It, it, the right way to understand what he's saying is, no one who believes will be put to shame. Right? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And he says, why? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? If you have, you will be saved. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You'll not be ashamed on that last day. No wonder John tells us again in verse 28, Now little children, abide in him. Remain, stay put. Abide in Christ by faith, right? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Notice John even says we. John isn't like separating himself from these little children saying, oh, you people struggle with this. He's saying that we might have confidence and not shrink from fear in shame at his coming. Only the one who's justified by faith in Christ alone can have that kind of confidence and even rejoicing at Christ's return. So may we all be trusting in Christ alone, not our own goodness or good works or anything. And may we continue to abide in Christ alone by faith always. Amen.